0: Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcast app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. This is Episode 6, Chapters 23 through 27. For photos, videos, and more information, visit dakotaspotlight.com. Chapter 23, Valentine's Day In the state of Washington, the Yakima River rises out of the Cascade Mountains. A tributary of the Columbia River, it trickles first and then winds and soars southeast through the Yakima Valley. Nested against this river is a town named Prosser. In 1953, on the morning of Saturday, February 14th, Valentine's Day, the sun rose on Prosser just in time to burn back the threat of a morning frost. On that morning, in the rectory behind Sacred Heart Parish, Father Joseph Sundergeld, a Catholic priest, sat and read the morning paper. He had a round and stocky face, and he wore his white hair short against his scalp and his reading glasses high on his nose. In the warmer months, he might take his coffee outside in his private courtyard, where he could look out over the low hills just to the south. On cool mornings like this one, he sat down in his study. Catholic priests all across the country read the newspaper on February 14, 1953. Splashed across front pages everywhere was the news that the Pope himself had sent a message to the President of the United States. The newspaper in Spokane, Washington, plastered a headline in bold caps. Judge to set early execution date for two spies, and next to that, Vatican says Pope intervened. The United States of America was set to execute Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who were American citizens convicted of spying for the Soviet Union. The Pope attempted to intervene and stop these executions from taking place.
2: The following is part of a statement just issued by the President of the United States. I am convinced that the only conclusion to be drawn the history of this case is that the Rosenbergs have received the benefit of every safeguard which American justice can provide. When in their most solemn judgment the tribunals of the United States have adjudged them guilty and the sentence just, I will not intervene in this matter.
0: Ultimately, the Pope and others opposed to the death penalty would be unsuccessful. The Rosenbergs were electrocuted to death four months later. Certainly, news headlines about the Pope and the death penalty grabbed the attention of priests everywhere that morning. As they proceeded with their day, perhaps they considered that very question. Does any person, or any state, have the right to play God and take another person's life? At Sacred Heart Parish that day in Prosser, Washington, if Father Sundergeld contemplated this, perhaps he did so as he walked the narrow corridor that led from the rectory to the rear of the church. He had a wedding to perform on that Valentine's Day. A couple visiting from North Dakota were getting married. They would soon become Mr. and Mrs. Feist. Chapter 24. County Jail One week after the Zick's funeral, the three young men were indicted on five counts in federal court in Bismarck. Their bond was set at $100,000, which none of them were able to post. Their preliminary hearing took place on July twenty-ninth. All three pleaded not guilty, and each man was supplied with a public defendant. They would later change their plea to guilty. While in the county jail, awaiting further proceedings, they all had their own ways of coping and passing the time. Gregory Huber received a letter from a girl. I'll call her Mary. He responded to that letter. Mary, sorry I didn't write sooner. You wanted to know if you could tell me some of your problems? Well, go right ahead. What the hell? What are friends for, right? I'll do my best to try to help you with your problems, too. You know something? Even with all these charges they have against me, I feel pretty damn good. The thing is, don't let your problems get you down, and everything will seem a hell of a lot brighter. I have to go to court tomorrow afternoon to look at the pictures of the people that were murdered when we robbed the bank, so I won't be here. So, take it easy, and don't let nothing get you down. David Feist was busy in jail also. He wrote a letter to his girlfriend, Julie Ann, in Selby, South Dakota. Julie. Well, by now you know what came down and where I'm at. I never intended for any of this to happen, but it's a little too late to do anything about it now. I don't know how you feel towards me after what happened, and I wouldn't hold it against you if you were to despise me for the rest of my life. All I can say is that I'm truly sorry for how I must have hurt you. I never meant for it to happen. Please try to understand. I was going to write you a letter from Canada, send you some money, and have you join me there. I don't know how or why we did what we did. All I can say is, I'd give anything to be able to turn back the hands of time. Meanwhile, Butch Feist had a cellmate in Bismarck, apparently. His name was Tony Schlosser. While in county jail, Schlosser wrote a letter to his wife. About halfway through the letter, he writes,
1: This guy in here with me calls himself Butch. We get along pretty good. He's told me all about what went on that night and what went on until they got caught. I'll tell you, I could never do what they done. That is downright cruel. They didn't have to kill them poor people. They never did anything to them three. Somehow,
0: law enforcement got wind of this and Schlosser met with them and agreed to write a sworn statement documenting what his jailmate Butch Feist had told him. Here it is.
1: It started out, I asked Butch what really happened from start to finish. He started out with that they went down to a party at South Dakota. Then at about 3.30 in the morning, they went to the old couple's place. They knocked on the door. No answer. So they went into the house and Butch went into the lady's purse and took the wallet with about $12. Dave went into the bathroom downstairs on the main floor. Butch and Greg went back outside. The old lady came downstairs to get a drink of water and Greg knocked on the door and told her they ran out of gas and they wanted to use the phone. She let them and she went back upstairs. Then she came back down and asked if they got a hold of Greg's dad. They said yes. Then Dave came out of the bathroom and held the gun on the old lady. The old man then came down the stairs and Dave turned to him and said, Don't do anything stupid or I'll kill you. Then Butch held his gun on the woman. And Greg went out and got his gun outside the house. Then Butch and Dave told the old man to get the keys to the bank. And the old man told his wife to go upstairs to get them. So she did and Dave turned to her and, when she was at the top of the stairs and said, Don't do anything stupid. And then they all left the house and went to the bank and got the money. Then they went out by the grandmothers one half mile away from the farm. They were going to tie them up, but they didn't have any rope, so Dave had told the old couple to go down into the little dump. Greg kept saying, he's going to shoot them. Butch and Dave got into a fight. Then Dave went back down and shot the old man. Then Butch went running down there and shot the old lady in the back. Right after Butch shot her, Dave shot her with a shotgun. She was laying there, still moving, so Dave shot her again in the stomach. After that, they went back to the farm and got their clothes, and they left.
0: While the boys were in jail in Bismarck, BCI agent Sickler had a chance to interview Gregory Huber and Sebastian Feist. David Feist declined to speak with them. Sickler remembers it this way. They were brought back to uh, Bismarck. As I recall, their attitudes uh, were fairly normal. They weren't... uh, real cocky, but there was no real remorse shown
2: that I remembered whatsoever, neither.
0: After a month in jail on August 23rd, David Feist changed his plea from not guilty to guilty. In an open court, he told the judge how the crime took place. The Bismarck Tribune published the following article.
1: I told them to sit down, and the next thing I knew I shot them, said Feist, in an open court confession. David Feist told the court that the evening of the incident began when the three defendants went to a party. He said they went back to Zeeland and Huber's house, and Huber went into the house and got a shotgun and three shotgun shells. He said they drove around town because there were still people driving around. Then they went out to their uncle's farm. He said Butch Feist and Greg got the two twenty two rifles. We went back into town and drove up and down for a while. We drove past the Zick's house a few times, then parked in the alley behind the house. Feist explained that he stood on one side of the house and his brother on the other side, and Greg knocked because he knew the people. Huber knocked on the door four or five different times, but come over and said he was scared and didn't want to knock anymore. David Feist continued that they talked about it, and Huber went to knock again before coming back and saying the door was unlocked. We decided we'll go in, and Greg and Butch and me went in, adding, they turned on the lights and looked around. David Feist said Miss Zick came downstairs first, and Huber asked to use the telephone. She went back up, and a little later her husband came down, and that's when I come out from around the corner. I told him to tell his wife to give him the keys to the bank and everything, and I asked him to tell her to come down. The five went out the back door, got into the car, and drove to the alley behind the bank. Me and my brother and the bank manager went around front, and he opened the door. Greg was in the back seat of the car with the banker's wife. The three defendants then drove the Zix to the gravel pit north of Zealand, Feist noting it was starting to get light out by that time. I had told the banker and his wife to go down into the pit, he said, which I followed them down. Then I hollered up to them guys and told them to bring the rope, which, of course, there wasn't any, but I did it anyway. David Feist said the other two defendants then told him to come back up out of the pit because they wanted to talk to him, and I said no, and I told the people to sit down, and the next thing I knew, I shot them. David Feist testified the three then got into the car and went back to his uncle's farm, dropped off the twenty twos, picked up a shotgun, and left the state. That's how it happened, he concluded
0: Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad free. That's right. No more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Chapter 25 Strong Coffee and Nazis In part one, we heard a bit from Don Wald, the Zick's son-in-law. Don Wald grew up in Zealand. He married Wade and Ellen's daughter, Nancy. He was with her when Sheriff Weist told her that her parents had been found dead, and naturally, he went to the funeral. As I mentioned earlier, Nancy Zick passed away in 2002. And of course, like most everyone else in this story, there are some difficult or heavy things that Donwald has had to live with, or perhaps carry with him, ever since July 11, 1976. For one... As he told us earlier, he was asked to go out to the gravel pit and help identify the bodies. It was something a minister or pastor felt unable to do himself, and so, very courageously, Don Wald stepped up and told himself, Okay, I can do this. I'll be the one. And I will carry this heavy memory with me until the day I die. Another lingering reality for Don is a little sting that hibernates within his heart, only to flare up again. Whenever he recalls the very last time he saw Wade and Ellen alive. It was the day before they died and as the Zick's were leaving Bismarck to return to Zealand, their grandchildren Mike and Robin were off playing with other kids. Wade and Ellen Zick had to leave without saying goodbye. We sat down and he shared with me his wonderful memories of Wade and Ellen and Nancy. We talked about life and death, love and loss, and the challenges of something called Forgiveness. One thing I want to ask you about that, in reference to this crime, to your knowledge, did any of the three convicted mm-hmm. men ever reach out to Nancy and with an apology or anything?
2: No, there is a story with that as well, um, and I, I think uh, no, no, not not directly to Nancy at all. Um, no. One one time. There's a priest in Zealand by the name of Father Pateko. He was a, um, from, it wasn't German or Russian, it Hungarian maybe or something like that. And uh, someone that had, uh, he had a a history, family history, distant family history of run-ins with the Nazis. And so he would blend that in with um, his sermons all the time. The Catholic Church? Yeah. And um, I was working at the State Library and I got a call from, the secretary said, it's uh, Father Pateko. He had, and one of the three, and I don't know who, it was, I think it was one of the Feist boys, had befriended him somehow, made friends with him. And uh, Father Pateko calls. And, uh, and I, I had sat through many of his sermons. Uh, like I said, we went down there a lot and he'd be pounding on the podium. And, about how bad uh, things were for, for his family and all the people. And um, he called me, and he asked me, he said, he's been talking to it's one of the kids, those guys. And um, he said, um, they were wondering if, and he said, as I wonder, w- would you find it in any way to forgive them for what they did? See, they didn't go to Nancy, he called me. And, um, as as of today, still, then as of today, it's a a very sensitive subject for me. Uh, Being a Catholic, um, we're supposed to live our lives forgiving people, but that's one I can't pull off. I, I can't pull that one off. And, um, So I told him, okay, Father, here's the deal. When you can find it in your heart to forgive the Nazis for what they did, I'll talk to the family about forgiving these guys for what they did. And he hung up so hard and so fast that it made my ear ring. I, I, I just thought that the audacity of asking something like that, you know, you know, through the priest, and and it was wrong of me to say that, I know that, but like I said, that's how I felt then, and I I still kind of feel that way today, and it bothers me, but I I can't, um, I can't just let it go. I know I should, but I, sometime, maybe, maybe I'll talk myself into it, or whatever it's going to take, but I can't.
0: This reminds me of something else I've been thinking of, I've been learning a lot about Wade Zick. You know, his grandfather was one of the founding uh, members of a church called St. Peter's Church, south of Chafee. You know, from my understanding, Wade was very, very religious. So that begs the question, would Wade have forgiven them? And that's a terrible, uh, impossible question to ask, but...
2: Yeah, it's, it's impossible to answer that, other than, um... I have to be honest with you. Absolutely honest. I think he would have. He would have? Mm-hmm. Just, that's how he is, though. That's how he is. I, th- I think he would have. He saw good in everything and uh, he didn't spend very much time looking for bad anywhere.
0: Listening to Dakota Spotlight Season Two, Zealand: The Untold Story of Wade and Ellen Sick, Their Lives and Their Tragic Murders in 1976. My name is James Waldner.
2: Nancy grew up and was adopted into the home uh, through Lutheran Social Services. She was Lutheran, and I'm I was Catholic. So we could see a big, you know, especially back then, you could see a big problem developing here. And uh, then we got engaged and uh, Wade was very quick to call a a meeting of us, Nancy and I and Wade, uh, down at the bank. You know, he addressed the fact that this could be a problem, but the type of person that he was, he made it very clear in so many words, you decide what you're gonna do and I'll support it. Wow. What I don't want is for the kids to have to decide someday who they're gonna to go to church with. You get that resolved before there are kids in the family. And we did, Nancy turned Catholic, which was a big move back in those days. Back in those days, yeah. And an even bigger move for the daughter of Wade Zick who was the backbone of his Lutheran church to do that but um, Nancy did that and everybody supported it
0: did Nancy ever talk much about the fact that she was adopted did you ever any conversations
2: um, not until later years uh, until not until not much anyway she always knew she was adopted and it was after Wade and Ellen were killed that it started working on her uh, you know, you kind of reach a point where you say, you know, I don't have any parents left at all anymore. Wade was super supportive all the time. He, uh, Nancy was the apple of Wade's eye. There's there's no doubt about it. He, he, he would do anything for her, anything and everything. Something else, the Catholic Church didn't have an organist for many years after he moved there. So he would go over to the Catholic Church and play organ during mass, and then go over to his own church and play organ, yeah. So, yeah, that, but that was what he did. You know, as far as being outgoing or shy, he was neither. He was just regular. He was just very controlled. He was a very controlled person. He, um, he suffered from what I have, is constant sinus problems, and uh, he even, even, not a smoker, but he even, uh, Nancy talked so much about this, went down to the store one time and bought himself a pack of salem cigarettes menthol cigarettes and so smoked them thinking that might the menthol might help clear it up <laughs> you know. so but he he was a really controlled person people respected him and that was really uh, important to him that he maintained that he would never go down to the bar that's the main thing that everybody did in Zealand is go down to the bar. He would drink beer, or he would have a highball once in a while as he called it. He knew the owner of the bar very well. So Dick Hilt would bring a case of beer over now and then to the house. And that's how he stocked his arsenal of
0: <laughs> beer. <So. Okay. laughs> and what what can you tell me? tell us about Ellen?
2: As a person she was dependent on Wade but and there again not in in a selfish way or a, a, a take care of me way uh, he was very important to her and she was very important to him she was a little bit she was not a small town girl she came from Fargo so um she occasionally would yearn to get out of Zealand for a while and at least go to Bismarck or something. So uh, they would, uh, they, but they went to Fargo a lot. And Jerry was living in Fargo at the time. And uh, Jerry was kind of the apple of her eye. And she was to everyone's supporter whenever she somebody needed something they they could go to her and they could get help you know whether it was the church looking for someone to bake something for the for an event or someone was sick and needed a meal brought over or something they would they could go to her the one thing i remember and i think she introduced this to wade's family she made her coffee so incredibly Strong that it, maybe that's a Norwegian thing or something, but you could almost set a spoon in it and it would almost stay sitting up. <laughs> yeah, and I and I drink a lot of coffee and I did then too, but boy, I could only take one one of those cups. <laughs> that was-
0: Chapter 26, Worse Than Death When it came time for sentencing, all three men received life in prison. David Feist received his sentencing first. The judge, Bruce Van Sickle, recommended that he never be paroled. The judge classified David Feist as a psychopathic murderer, amoral and governed by egocentricity and unable to establish normal human relations. In court, the judge told Feist, Given the very limited possibility that you will learn to function in society, society has no choice but to warehouse you in a humane manner until the day you die. When Butch Feist and Gregory Huber received their sentences, Judge Van Sickle rejected contentions by the defense that mitigating circumstances existed that might justify lighter sentences. Their lawyers, especially Greg Huber's, argued that it was David Feist that did the actual killing. When the judge handed down Butch's sentencing, he had this to say. If I were to select someone easiest to have sympathy for of the three defendants, it would be you, Sebastian. My concern with you, though, is that you represent a different type of danger. You acted under a mindless, spasmodic obedience to another to take a life. One who kills under these circumstances is one who should not be allowed to go free. Van Sickle added that he thought there is a possibility that at some time Butch Feist might make some slight repair to his remaining life. When it came time to sentencing Huber, his defense attorney tried to point out that Gregg had not fired a weapon. Judge Van Sickle was not swayed, however. He told the defendant, Any extended imprisonment for you because of your youthful appearance and slight build will be worse than death, worse than two deaths. But I cannot turn away from the fact that you participated in a deliberate program against two innocent people who did you no harm. If I were prone to arrange the defendants to find the one most likely for sympathy, you would not be the one I would select. You are a braggart and a weakling. You conceived of the plan and boasted of it. You conceived the plan, but could not stop it and did not stop it. What the judge did not add to this was that, even if it might have been difficult for Greg Huber to have stopped the killings at the gravel pit, if he had wanted to, he had ample opportunity to rescue Ellen Zick. When the Feist brothers took Wade Zick into the bank, Gregory Huber was alone with Ellen in the back seat of the car outside. Freedom, for both of them really, was just a door handle away. All it would have taken was a smidgen of empathy and courage on Greg Huber's part, neither of which he apparently had or was willing to share with the terrified Ellen Zick. I recently spoke on the phone with two close relatives of Ellen Mamel Zick. They asked me not to use their names. One told me that the murders of Wade and Ellen still makes him nauseous. It makes me want to throw up, he said. Another said, it completely changed my opinion of the death penalty. The men who did this should have been put to death years ago. Capital punishment was abolished in North Dakota just three years before the Zicks were killed. In fact, at the sentencing, Judge Van Sickle stated that, due to the nature of the crime, he would feel a quote, moral obligation to impose the death penalty if it were permissible. Unquote. After sentencing, David Feist, aged 22, and Sebastian Feist and Greg Huber, both just 18 years of age, began their life sentences in federal prisons. Chapter 27 David Feist. Perhaps this is a good time to introduce David Feist today, who is the only one of the three thus far who has been willing to correspond with me. He's incarcerated at Terre Haute Federal Prison in Indiana. Gregory Huber is no longer in prison. He is a free man, no longer on parole. Just prior to his release, Huber wrote in a letter to a judge, Please forgive me for being so bold, but I'd like to ask you to rule in my motion in the very near future. I'm sorry for my crimes, and while I'm unable to change the past, I want you to know that I will never, ever again, break the law. I asked Greg Huber to speak with me for this story. I originally thought he might have something to say to young kids out there. If he felt he was just a regular kid dragged into something, perhaps he had some words of warning, lessons to be learned. Maybe he could contribute to something positive from all of this. Or even better, maybe he might be able to help me answer those two questions. Why were the Zicks killed, and what were their last words? Mr. Huber declined my invitation. He is welcome to reach out at any time, as are any members of his family, whom I also had reached out to. Butch Feist also declined to correspond with me or offer any information. At the time of this recording, he is in prison in Arizona, although he's scheduled to be released very soon. By the time you listen to this, he may already be out. As I said, David Feist did agree to correspond with me for this project. David Feist receives parole hearings every now and then. So far, he has been refused parole, but he told me that he expects to get out someday. I had never written to anyone in prison before, so I really didn't know what to expect, but he did try to give me an answer to the many questions I had for him, including those two uncomfortable questions, although it took me quite a while to get the nerve to ask him those. Our correspondence took place solely through the written word. I have never heard his voice. Before sharing his story with me, I asked him to consider one thing. Did he think his participation in this podcast would help or maybe even hurt his chances of parole? I certainly didn't want his participation to do either one of those things. This is what he had to say. You asked me if I thought that by doing this story, it would help or maybe even hurt my chances with the parole board. Hell, flip a coin. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? One thing I do hope is that by doing it, it can bring some closure to the ones my actions hurt because I am truly sorry for the hurt that I brought to everyone. Time will be the judge on that one. Another thing I told him from the beginning was that I could offer no compensation for him. I could not and would not pay him for his story. He responded quite frankly that he didn't need my money. That was not why he was doing this. He thanked me for having the thought at all. In the end, I did send him something, although not money. It was some ancestry information about the Feist lineage. I was researching it anyway for this story, and he found it of great interest, so I shared it with him. In fact, here is the one-minute version of how the German-from-Russia family named Feist ended up in Zealand in the first place. David Feist's great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Johannes Feist, was born in 1751 near the border of France and Germany. He had one son named Nicholas, born 1779. At the age of 28, like many other Germans, Nicholas emigrated to Russia, taking along his wife Margareta and two sons. One of these sons was two-year-old Alois. They lived in a colony named Strasbourg Colony in Russia. Great-great-great-grandfather Alois Feist lived and died in Strasbourg Colony, but his son Franz P. Feist and his wife emigrated to America. When they were almost 50 years old. At least one of their sons, 25 year old Nicholas, went along too. Nicholas had 12 kids. One of them was Butch and David Feist's grandfather, Anton Nicholas Feist. He was born in 1900 and he married Katie Feist, his first cousin. Anton died at the age of 29, leaving Katie with four kids. These were Butch and David Feist's Aunt Magdalena, their uncle Nick then their own father, Sebastian Sr., and then finally, their uncle, Alex Feist. David and Butch's father, Sebastian Sr., married Gladys Grotz on Valentine's Day, 1953, in Prosser, Washington. They had several children, first two daughters, then came David Feist, born December 19, 1954. Another son named Stanley followed him in '56. Then came another daughter, and then Butch Feist was born in Redfield, South Dakota, in 1958. Another daughter followed him. The family lived for a while in a town called Ree Heights, then Harriet, and then Selby, South Dakota. Sebastian Sr., their father, was killed in an auto accident in 1963 when David Feist was about nine years old and Butch five. I asked David Feist what memories he had of his father. Going over early memories of my life in my head, and there are a few things that I do remember about my dad. I remember living in Ree Heights, South Dakota as a kid, and dad and I put together a model truck, 34 Ford. That thing was sitting on the shelf forever, seems like. There was another time, I don't remember what he did to me, but in retaliation, I filled his work boots with coal. I remember he worked on the big dam they were building down in Pierre, and He would get up early and go to work and the coal got his socks all black there was another time i remember we were playing hide and seek and he hid in the trunk of the car then there was this one winter that he dug out this big snow pile and made us a snow fort with a light and everything i can remember him taking me hunting with him and how he would shoot over the limit and then he would hide them under the hood of the car in the wheel wells by the motor i do remember he liked to drink he had a bottle of something stashed out in the garage and my little brother Butch found it and drank so much he couldn't walk. Hell, he had to be around four years old then. The accident that took their father's life also killed their uncle, Nicholas, who was riding in the same car. So, zooming out for a second, the life of their grandmother Katie went something like this. Her husband died when he was 29, leaving her with four kids. Two of her sons died together in an automobile accident. Later, Two of her grandsons were sentenced to life in prison for murder. According to David Feist, the driver of the other car, Jerry Bradner, had been drinking. According to Jerry Bradner's wife at the time, it was the other way around. Her memories of that accident that took place over 56 years ago are the following.
3: Uh, my name is Judy, and
2: I was Judy Jehola from Linton, North Dakota. I met... Uh, Jerry Brander from Harriet, South Dakota, and we got married. There was no snow, there was no ice, there was no rain. It was a clear, perfectly clear day, and he was driving along in his car, and they just uh, ran into him because they were drinking. The only thing I've been told, and I haven't heard any more.
0: Those of you who have been listening to my podcast for a while will be in no way surprised when I say that I did try to find out exactly what happened. I wrote the South Dakota Highway Patrol and other agencies, but no records were available anymore, says David Feist. As for Mom, I don't really remember a lot from when I was a kid. One thing I do remember was when she hung me by my bib overalls on the clothesline when she was doing laundry because I was running wild like a little shit will. I remember how she changed after Dad died. It's like the light went out of her eyes or something. She became short-tempered and would say things like, If you kids don't stop, I'll run away to old Mexico and they will never bring me back. The family lived in Selby, South Dakota for a few years in the 60s. This is where the kids went to school until they would leave for California around 1968 when their mom met and married a man named Don Dyson. Selby, South Dakota is like many other agricultural towns on the prairie, Main Street, Water Tower, School, Bank... Gas stations, grain elevator. I traveled to Selby one weekend with my microphone. I wanted to see it because it's not just the place where the Feist lived in the 60s when the kids went to school there. Selby is also the place where David Feist was living and working up until a couple months before the crime took place. This is where his girlfriend Julianne lived. In fact, you may remember the boys dropped off Julianne in Selby about two or two and a half hours before Wade and Ellen were murdered. I didn't know if I'd find many people who remembered the Feist from way back in the sixties, but true story, I walked into a bar and grill, and the first people I met not only remembered the Feist, but they had been their neighbors over fifty years ago. Oh,
3: no, 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 no. They were nice neighbors. I didn't but
0: that's not all. Believe it or not, they also had a story for me from those days. Another story involving the Feist brothers, a theft, a bank, and a gun
3: gone. A little while later, she she said, i seen the two vice boys come out of the house.
0: And I'll tell you all about it next time. <laughs> Dakota Spotlight is produced solely by myself at Everything Midwestern, LLC, in the state of North Dakota. Permission to use the songs North Dakota, Mile Marker, Cold Black River, and others granted generously by Peter Hicks, performed by Sleepy Driver. Check out and support Sleepy Driver's music on Spotify or at sleepydriver.bandcamp.com, where you can purchase a special Dakota Spotlight Season 2 digital collection with the music from this season. See the link in the show notes or at dakotaspotlight.com. Thank you, Peter Hicks and Sleepy Driver. To God Be the Glory, sung by the Sunday school children at St. Peter's Church, Chafee, North Dakota, three miles from Wade Zick's childhood home. To see photographs, videos, and other premium content, and to support this project all at the same time, please visit dakotaspotlight.com. My email is dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. I'm always looking for the next story. Do you know what that story should be? Thank you so much for listening and for coming along with me to North Dakota.
3: And I'm bound for North Dakota To where they got more sky than ground Cause I'm tired of California And that dirty little town Yeah, I'm bound for North Dakota To where silence is the sound And I want to take you with me Cause I like your kind I'm sleeping in my car with the radio on and the windows down, and I'm up before the dawn before this heartache gets the best of me. I'm gone.